Hello, I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor, Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we, we are, are the Money the Cafe. Money Cafe. <laughs> a little bit disjointed today uh, because we're, we're not in the physical cafe because uh, I have uh, COVID. I'm on day four and I'm not feeling too bad. I might be sounding a bit shabby, but Stephen, I'm going okay. And, and, and Alan's also indisposed, so... I guess, Stephen, the inmates have taken over the asylum to some extent. Well, yeah. we, we have. We've lost the great AK, but uh, we get to run amok while he's indisposed. I'm actually a bit fluey myself, so I'm uh, I'm glad we're doing this remotely. But uh, yes, well, more, more than enough to talk about, I must say, with uh, all the market chaos overnight and the elections and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, sh- we should start with the election. We're only a few days out now, and... Uh, I, I'd like a, a, a independent view, Stephen. I've, uh, Alan's bet me $20 that uh, Josh Frydenberg will lose his seat. Um, but speaking of betting markets, there's been a lot of money for the coalition in the last few days and things seem to be tightening up. What, what, what's, what's happening here? Yeah, well, I think Morrison has got a bit of a bump out of his policy launch and the, um, the super policy and some differentiation with Labor. I can't explain anything else as to why the, the polls haven't moved until the last three or four days. Yeah. So um, I think the Josh situation, Josh might just survive. I think this idea of we don't want Dutton, um, why would you knock off a future Prime Minister? But uh, I was just seeing the TAB odds on Tim Wilson and Zoe Daniels. Zoe's at $1.35 and Tim Wilson's out to $3. So I think... Zoe is the most certain teal winner, yeah. uh, and Josh, I still would put it 50-50, I think. Yeah. Can you see a path to – I mean, one, one of the narratives recently has been maybe there's a path for uh, the coalition to hold on here. Um, yes, they might lose some seats, but Labor might lose a, a seat or two as well. Christine Keneally's seat's been mentioned in dispatches as under threat. Can you see a, a, a narrow path for the coalition? Um, look, I, I, I can. It involves not losing any in Queensland, where they've already got 23 out of 30, uh, and then just sandbagging, you know, their Tasmanian and WA uh, seats. They might they might lose a couple in, in New South Wales. Um, and I think Chisholm looks like it's probably going to fall. And there's an interesting little line there with the – I saw some polling numbers this morning that Chinese Australians have ch- turned against the government in a pretty major way, not enjoying all the all the rhetoric uh, about uh, Dutton's rhetoric with the potential war with China and stuff. So I think the, those seats with the big Chinese communities like Benelong, um, Parramatta and Chisholm, I think far more likely to, to, to be Labor's on Saturday night. Yeah, okay. And and so a, a few days out, uh, a particularly policy light campaign, where do you what, – what's your prediction? What, what, what happens from here? Well, I agree it's been a very disappointing campaign from a policy point of view. When, when, when someone just plays such a small target like, like Albanese has, I mean, even agreeing to aspects of the housing policy, you know, the, 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 the downsizing before they even saw the detail last Sunday. Yeah. Um, it's pretty uninspiring, I've got to say. But um, And for those of us who are fiscal hawks who want to see a debate about good fiscal management, well, that's been, uh, that's been disappointing. Um, 
so and even the COVID discussion has been very thin on the ground, um, even though the cases and the deaths are spiralling at the moment because both sides don't see any upside in talking about uh, COVID again. So, look, I think that Albanese will probably just sneak into office because people don't like ScoMo and uh, and, uh, and Labor hasn't given enough reasons to reject them, unlike uh, franking credits last time. Yeah, and, and and the I mean the independence push, the teal push has been the big talking point of the campaign. Uh, you, you mentioned Goldstein looks likely to fall to Zoe Daniel, but how how many do you have a sense of how many teal candidates we might end up with? Like, will, will this fizzle to some extent, or will it burn bright? No, I think I think it'll be you know all the existing independents will get back. So you've already got a sort of a, a teal camp anyway with um you know with Indi and and um and Zali Stegel etc. So I think Zoe's Zoe's as close to a definite as you can get, and it'll be of of new teals. It'll be anywhere between one and five. I mean, Kate Cheney is a chance out west. Uh, there's two or three in play in Sydney. So uh, and then I think Nichols with um the the the, the Shepherd and Councillor is a fair, a fairly good chance to become a new country independent and knock off the Nats in um, Kathy McGowan nearby Kathy McGowan territory up there around around Shepparton. So, but he's he's more likely to support a coalition government than the Teals, who all look like they would back in uh, back in Albanese on uh, on climate integrity and gender as their three three big things. Yeah, but uh, I think the Teals have been Teals have been a healthy n- new element in this campaign and keeping the Liberal Party. Honest, um, and uh, I'm actually hoping for a hung parliament because I really want to see some of the dividends that will come from that on on climate and integrity in particular. Yeah, yeah. The the, the impact on the market's been pretty muted. Um, do, do you think that'll uh, that, that'll be the case? Should we have a change of government come Monday? Well, there's a fair chance that a Labor government, you know, a big spending lefty socialist left faction. There's a, there's a big chance that the the markets will suddenly become a bit more focused on on debt and deficit, you know, because we've never seen this sort of interest rates going up, inflation, ridiculous labour shortages, uh, record levels of debt. You know, what is the path back to surplus? Um, so I think there is a fair chance that um, Albanese will be subjected to a lot more scrutiny, market scrutiny. Um, than the coalition has been getting, and that's partly because we—it's so rare to get a change of government in Australia. I mean, if this happens, it'll be the only the fourth one that I can remember in my yeah. fifty-two yeah. years. So you know, it's it's very rare to have a change of government, um, and I think that people will only really start to focus on that if and when it actually happens. Um, yeah, true. And if it's—I mean, if it's minority, it'll—I mean, the last time it was minority, it retained the government. So we, in Australia, we've never had a minority change of government before. Um, that will be a whole new thing, and I think it will be quite chaotic, but ultimately for the better. Yeah. The, the interesting point to me on markets is, is climate policy. Uh, I wonder if, you know, we, we, if, if it was a Labor government come next week, or, or, or perhaps it might take a few weeks to get there, and, and we do have a more aggressive climate policy, I wonder if there might be a fair few corporates that welcome that, given they've tended to move faster than the government anyway with their own climate policies, and they might see that as a bit more certainty to invest behind. Oh, look, I, I agree. The, the BCA has been calling for, you know, more consistent policy. I mean, the Woodside AGM is, is underway now, started at uh, noon 
Eastern time. And we got the first vote on their climate report today. So, you know, all these corporates have gone a whole lot further um, than, than public policy has in Australia. I mean, I was just attending the, the Eagers Automotive AGM this week, Australia's biggest car company. And I was just saying to them, look, most sophisticated economies have got a sunset date for petrol-driven cars, you know, 2035 or 2040. Are we at risk of a hung parliament introducing a 2040 drop-dead date for the sale of, uh, of traditional ICE cars? And they were saying, oh, you know, we're not sure. But So I think, yeah, there's a fair chance there could be a big impact from significant you know, movement on the on the climate policy front. And I think business broadly would welcome that because they're well ahead of the political game at the moment. Yeah, well, we don't need too much more uh, chaos on markets because there's plenty as it is. Uh, Wall Street overnight was down uh, 4%, uh, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the poor old NASDAQ got smashed again. The Dow had its worst night in since the, the sort of peak of the pandemic panic. Uh, the stagflation uh, monster has is firmly sitting on top of investors here. Sentiment's pretty terrible, and and yet we're only at the very start of the hiking cycle. That's right. Well, Jerome Powell spooked the markets a couple of nights ago, you know, declaring how resolute he was to see off inflation, and I think people are starting to realise that that that's that's bad news for growth because there it's going to be significant hiking uh, globally. And um, and then you've seen the results from particularly Target uh, shares yeah. are down twenty seven percent, but also um, Home Depot um, that they're complaining about you know rising diesel costs and just inflation through the system. So I think we've we've all grown to live without inflation for so long because of the whole China deflation and the productivity technology play that everyone's just not used to it, and uh, you can only kill inflation with uh, a slowdown. And so I think people are starting to think that um, you know U.S. recession. Uh, slow down, and that's that's got to be bad for earnings, and that feeds through into into PEs and valuations. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're not seeing any signs that uh, you know some of those the, those really sticky parts of inflation are going to fade. Uh, Janet Yellen was out overnight, sort of adding to this concern about a a food crisis around the world. Obviously, it's in it's in Western countries, it's. It, it, it's pretty muted, but there's some places around the world, some Asian countries, Sri Lanka is a good example, where getting your hands on fuel and food is starting to become a real issue. And, uh, you know, that sort of inflation is going to prove pretty sticky and not easy to not easy to tame, I would have thought. The, the target result's really interesting. I mean, this, this company's sort of been cruising along. And what they said last night was that their margin's going to fall 25% from sort of 8% of sales to 6% of sales because A, their costs are going up, but B, consumers have stopped spending on discretionary items. It's What's stunning, what always catches markets out is how quickly things change. Like it's not so much the magnitude of the rate rises we've seen, but how fast uh, attitudes are changing. And I, I guess we're lucky in a way, Stephen, that we haven't seen those... In, pressures as much here in Australia um, and in fact wage growth and unemployment figures out uh, today and yesterday are you know pretty muted I guess well in fact you know unemployment down to 3.9 lowest level since uh, 1974 I mean I still think that's partly because of scomo's biggest single blunder blunder of the pandemic which was telling all the foreign students to go home and not giving them any job keeper or any support, and I think we've been paying the price ever since for that move. But, uh, but uh, yeah, look, we we are 
relatively better off than most, I think it's fair to say. Um, and obviously not suffering uh, food shortages and, and our market sell-off has been less less severe. I guess we haven't had the boom with all the tech stocks. I mean, Amazon was down 7% overnight, is now 35% off its peak. Yeah. So the tech the tech boom means that, they, that the US markets have got a lot further to fall and Amazon's still trading on 71 times even though it's down 35%, whereas most of the other big techs are in at their, their P ratios are now into the 20s. Yeah. So I think Amazon's the one that could come a lot further down. But, um, yeah, normally consumer staples you'd, you'd be relying on in the uncertain times, but they've been getting clobbered as well because the, you know, the, the fear of the inflation is crunching their earnings and margins, as you mentioned. Yeah, boring old uh, Australia with its miners and banks suddenly doesn't look so boring anymore. Well, that's right. The one thing we haven't seen is anything coming off the commodities boom. So I know we'll, yeah. we'll get to it later in, in questions, but I just, I just in researching some of the questions, I noticed that the Queensland government is going to get a $2.6 billion coal royalties windfall this year alone. They predicted originally $2 billion in coal royalty, and then they updated in December to $4.6 billion, uh, which is more than they'll get in payroll tax. And so that is just the commodities boom going, you know, continuing on. And, you know, the U.S. has not got that. And it's showing no signs of winding back in Australia. So we are, we are the luckiest country in the world in that regard. Yeah, that's the, unfortunately for the people in Ukraine, that's a bit of the spoils of war too, as the Europe tries to sort itself out. Now, now one sort of spillover of what we're seeing on markets, the volatility and, and the downward pressure, we should say, is that we're still seeing a bit of, we're, we're seeing, seeing some delays in some skittishness, some nervousness in takeover land. Uh, Crown's still awaiting regulatory approval. Uh, a, a, a mooted takeover approach for Brambles uh, sort of fell over very quickly. There's been questions over Lynx takeover by a Canadian group. Is this just market nervousness? Is this just what happens when markets get nervous that these sort of things start becoming a lot harder? Well, I think you can throw Twitter in there as well with the yeah, shares now yeah. at a 32% discount to Musk's takeover price. So we did have a bit of a bubble, particularly in tech. Uh, with easy money, zero interest rates, so people could just borrow to their heart's content and, and pay big prices. So all of a sudden, bond yields have soared, so corporate debt is becoming a whole lot more expensive. And, uh, I mean, even Ramsey is only trading at 78.87 today when KKR is supposedly uh, making an indicative bit of $88 a share. Yeah, so that's a fair, fair discount there. And even Crown, the vote, the vote is tomorrow. And uh, the office at thirteen ten, the stocks at twelve eighty one, and we're still waiting for regulatory approval. I just think they're being brazen, going for the vote the day before the election, trying to effectively try to bully the uh, the three state regulators into signing off on the deal. Um, but they've all been very quiet. These state governments about whether they really want Blackstone to take over take over Crown, and then the Link one. I mean, that was the takeover price from Diane Durham is five dollars fifty. And the Link share price is four dollars forty-seven, and the, the the Canadian company Diane Durham, their share price is down sixty-six percent this year, and there's a heavily debt-financed deal. So, yeah, I think um, you you know you're not going to see these overpriced takeovers in an environment of uh, rising interest rates and rising bond yields in particular. The risk the risk premium is being thrown at you know the the, the ten years are out beyond three percent. And the, the spread with junk bonds versus the government yields has gone from sort of two, I think you wrote that this this recent day, so it's gone from like 2% premium to more than 4% premium for 
junk like uh, corporate debt, and that's yeah. making takeovers much harder to complete. It, it, it's amazing what happens when there's an actual cost to capital rather than the uh, the, the the free money we've got used to. Should, Stephen, should we jump into some questions? We've got some good ones. So yes, perhaps I might start. Uh, this is a question from Justin who says he's wondering if we're able to decode or comment on a political ad from uh, the United Australia Party, Clive Palmer's mob, which the, the ad says... Uh, Clive's going to promise to bring back a trillion dollars of Australian super from overseas uh, to be invested in Australia to increase wages and living standards. And Justin asked, does this have any merit? Uh, um, (laughs) Could Clive force the super funds to stop investing overseas, do you think? Um, oh, look, I think you could you could legislate about asset allocation with compulsory super. I mean, the fact that it's government legislation that compels the super to be put aside, so I can't see why the government theoretically couldn't legislate on that, but it would be a stupid move because as the Sri Lankans are discovering, you know, you need offshore reserves. You need US dollar reserves, offshore reserves, in case you have some form of currency crisis. So, Australia's compulsory super is nicely balanced between offshore and on, onshore A-dollar assets and international assets. And I think it would be madness to, to put an all-eggs-in-the-Aussie-basket approach. And as for Clive's claim that this would increase wages and living standards to do this, I mean, that's bollocks as well. All it would do in the short term would be to drive up the price of Australian equities and uh, and bonds because uh, you've suddenly got a trillion dollars being uh, liquidated from international assets and brought into A-dollar assets. So the dollar would soar, um, but it would have no effect on wages and living standards. So I think it's just one of Clive's many crazy claims. I mean, the 3% mortgage cap is, <laughs> is it's interesting. I mean, that would send big bank share prices crashing, but some people don't like the fact that our big four banks are capitalised at more than $400 billion. And as for the 15% uh, customs duty on iron ore exports, I mean, that's a policy that hurts himself, if ever there was one, given he gets royalties from iron ore in WA. But the Queensland coal taxes peak at 15% when the price goes above $150 a tonne. So WA is, is undertaxed on, on iron ore. Yeah. Um, and uh, look, I think that, would, that that's his most logical policy, maybe not 15% flat, but certainly a much higher share going to uh, taxpayers than the, than the bonanza that the iron ore miners like Twiggy and BHP and Rio are currently uh, pocketing. Be fascinated to see how he goes on uh, on, on Saturday anyway, Clive. It's, uh, he's certainly put the dollars in, so we'll see what return he, he gets. He's a chance to get into the Senate. I think that for me, that's almost the most interesting contest is is who who wins the last two spots in the Queensland Senate race between Campbell Newman for the Lib Dems, uh, Paul Ann Hansen, uh, Clive Palmer, and Matt Canavan as the as the second on the on the LNP ticket. So uh, only only a couple of those will get up. So um, I hope it's not Clive to be honest, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Now, Jed says, thanks for a great podcast. Uh, what are your thoughts on Morrison's proposal to allow first home buyers to dip into their super? Surely such a policy would put upward pressure on house prices, negating the intended effect, much like the first home buyer's grant. Yeah, well, I think that's yeah. right. I mean, definitely there will be upward pressure on house prices. Uh, but I, I think it's been interesting to follow this debate. I mean, the first... Uh, that's everyone's first reaction, right? And it's it's clearly correct that most of this will just go into, um, most of this will just push up house prices by the, you know, the average amount people are going to be able to extract. But it's been interesting to me as the week's gone on that people have been thinking about this a bit more and about 
you know, flexible slash innovative ways to think about super and using it. So, yeah, um, I don't think this idea died quite as quickly as I thought it might. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think that it's uh, uh, it's probably quite popular. I think it has helped them in the polls. It, it will it will cause a short term bump in housing prices, but that could easily be offset by you know government cranking up supply down the track. You know, finally tack- tackling negative gearing, and you know if you're really brave, capital gains tax exemptions on the family home. The thing I don't like about the policy is that people will get trapped in their first home when trying to trade yeah. up to their yeah. second home. I think that's the that's the unintended consequence there. So, um, well, well um, and, and on that, Lincoln's got a good question regarding the the policy. Is there a reasonable risk that somehow some homes bought using superannuation savings will become uninsurable or unsellable due to increased floods and bushfire frequency in the year to come? Will the taxpayer be footing the bills for pensions and property buyouts? So that's a little, uh, you know, there's a few assumptions to be made there, a few leaps to be made, but it's they're not unreasonable leaps. Um, there are some unintended consequences that you'd have to think through, like, you know, people getting stuck in their first homes, uh, homes being bought. H- how do you determine w- whether a capital gain comes from the property or a renovation? Or, uh, there would be a bit to be through with this policy. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I think it is sort of... Uh, unnecessarily complex and so is Labor's one to be honest the joint equity scheme as well it just gets quite complicated taking money out of super giving it back calculating the capital gain um, you know what's the compounding rate you assume etc etc I do think yeah. Lincoln is catastrophizing a bit uh, linking this policy to uh, uh, climate disasters leaving people homeless um, and climate refugees I mean the bottom line with climate refugees is that the Australian government is always there for, for those in trouble who need support, be it public housing, age pensions, subsidised aged care, homelessness programs, etc. So, you know, we do have a, a, a great tradition in Australia of, uh, of helping out the battlers, and I think that will apply with climate change refugees who are Australian citizens. I wouldn't say it'd be the same for non-citizens um, with the coalition government, but... Uh, now, next one, Jane asks, we sold a house just before COVID hit and decided to sit on the 300k cash we received at that time because we really thought the housing market would drop during COVID. Bad idea in hindsight. But here we are three years later with the money in term deposits earning about half a percent. We won't buy back in probably for another 12 to 18 months to see if prices come down a bit. So we're thinking of putting some of our money into a mortgage trust, Trilogy or Latrobe. Seeing as interest rates are going up and mortgage stress is hitting, we're wondering if mortgage trusts are a bad idea right now or do you have an alternative suggestion for where to invest this cash for 12 to 18 months? Oh, well, Jane, I don't think we'll comment on uh, individual mortgage trusts, but it's an interesting idea that you raise uh, that will there be a bit of mortgage stress as rates rise? Uh, You think yes. And does that put a bit of pressure on mortgage trusts? Now, that's the the secondary questions, the interesting one to think through, um, you know, these are t- typically bigger pooled, bigger pools of mortgages. So you should get a bit of diversification across the pool. Um, it's hard to comment on the individual risks in any pool. But I, I guess what I would say is we have seen term deposits and saving rates start to move up. And you would think that they'll that, that will uh, happen further as, as rates rise. So you might not have to take as much risk, i.e. go into a mortgage trust, um, as you would have had to 12 to 18 months ago, if that makes sense. So as rates rise, you'll get more benefits on those less risky 
uh, asset classes like term deposits and even cash. So I guess Jane's got a couple of different ways to go. And as as a saver, uh, she will get offered some some better deals in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, look, that's true. Jane, my point would be uh, maybe take a balanced approach. You know, with the market coming off, the share market coming off, you, you might, you know, wait for the dips, but you could put 100K into shares, buying on the dips, ETFs, licks, bank hybrids, and then even the bond yields. I mean, I just looked up this morning, three-year Victorian government bonds are currently yielding just above 3%. So that beats a term deposit. And effectively, it is a three-year term deposit because they expire in um, in three years' time and you'll get the face value back. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, I wouldn't be going all in with a single uh, a single mortgage trust, that's for sure. It's a take-a-balanced approach, but you can certainly do better than half a percent in a term deposit, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Seal Lee uh, asks, now that Mike Cannon-Brooks has taken Stephen's advice and obtained a substantial shareholding of AGL, curious to what you think it means for shareholders. Stephen, will you be voting on the demerger proposal? What impacts will it have for climate action and energy supply demand and costs in Australia? I'm not a current shareholder, but thinking of becoming one so I can vote or direct my proxy. Might even get a dividend out of AGL. Stephen, uh, the, the, the ownership issue seems to be uh, clearer by the day uh, as as Cannon Brooks gets his hands gets his hands on actual shares rather than uh, borrowing. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't like the the acrobatics he was doing with borrowed stock through JP Morgan, but look, he's getting a few more real shares now. But yeah, he still claims to be speaking for eleven point three percent, which is enough to defeat it on its own because it's a seventy five percent supermajority required. And more than fifty percent of the company is owned by one hundred and fifty thousand retail shareholders who usually don't bother to vote because the turnout rate was only a thirty thirty eight percent at last year's annual meeting. So, Sue Lee, you can certainly buy a few shares. You need to buy them before Wednesday, June the eighth, to be on the register for the June fifteen meeting. You'd have to vote at the meeting because you won't be sent to proxy form because they've already been sent out because the notice has gone out. So. But whatever happens, Sue Lee, I don't think your stake's going to be big enough to, 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 to move the dial one way or the other. But I know that quite a few retail shareholders will be voting against, and I think the deal is, is dead. You think it's dead? Uh, are you, are you, is there an AGL share in your uh, wide portfolio, Stephen? I think I've got the usual uh, six or seven. So, um, so yeah, I'll be certainly speaking. Um, but, uh, look, I think, yeah, that, I think that the, the meeting will not proceed because they'll release the proxies uh knowing that it's been defeated and they'll just simply cancel the meeting. It's very rare for a proposal to, to actually go down in a final completed vote. Normally boards work walk away to save the embarrassment. So I agree with Mark Cannon-Brooks that it makes more sense to keep it together if you want to accelerate closures as it, in a coal, coal, mine, coal power station closures as an integrated outfit. And if there's a change of government, I think that might um, also be better supported out of Canberra if... Uh, if that happens on Saturday. So very interesting corporate political uh, combination situation there. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a good, good couple of weeks. Absolutely. Now, Ben says, why are interest rates the only tool used to control inflation? If a lot of inflation is fueled by imports, why can't we temporarily reduce import tariffs? But what about independently raising taxes? At least then the money goes back into the community, not to banks' margins. We don't uh, have much in the tariffs anymore, do we, James? No, so, I was going to uh, say we, we don't have many tariffs left. Um, I know we have some tariffs on cars, but uh, there's not a lot of car supply at the moment, so that's probably not a big factor. Um, 
the idea of raising tax as well, yeah, that, that's that's what the MMT uh, uh, proponents suggest that the government should be doing at a time like this. Um, <laughs> it's hard to see uh, either of the political parties going for that at the moment. And so, as Ben says, we're really left with the big hammer of uh, interest rates to try and whack the, uh, the nuanced nails of inflation. So... Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, the, the stimulus was done for too long globally, I think. Zero interest rates and money printing. It just went on too long and now we're all paying the price with global inflation magnified yeah. by Russia, Ukraine and, uh, and, and COVID, COVID lockdowns. But look, the government did a great move with the fuel excise move. In terms of uh, inflation relief, that 22 cent cut was the biggest thing the government, federal government could have done. Other things they could do, they've only really got big taxes on alcohol and tobacco, which I don't think you'd get much support for doing that. And you're right, the, the luxury car tax kicks in at 33% for everything above 80000 or 70000 if it's a fuel-efficient car. Uh, but the feds could actually choose to subsidise private health and states could provide more energy rebates or cut the cost of public transport, which is subsidised anyway. So government does have a few tools to ease the cost of living crisis it's a direct hit to the budget often though when you do that as the fuel excise move shows but i think the bottom line is we've got to stop money printing and put up interest rates for a bit to try and deal with this bubble and uh, contain inflation yeah yeah all right so we've got to race through a few of these Stephen. uh last week with a touch of sarc without a touch of sarcasm Stephen suggested greg hunt was an excellent health minister shooing for director at csl uh, what do you believe he's achieved to receive such lofty praise? And uh, what skills, knowledge and capability does it take to be a director of Australia's third largest company? Robert says, perhaps I missed my calling. Well, well, Robert, first, I'm not saying that Greg Hunt should be the CEO of CSL. I'm just saying he should be one of the 10 part-time directors. I mean, if someone can sit at a cabinet table for nine years... And that basically is being a, an executive director of a very large enterprise called uh, Australia. If you can do that and you can handle a pandemic, and I would have thought you could be a non-executive director in a health sector company. That's all I'm saying. And I, I did spend three days on a future leaders camp with Greg Hunt back in 2005. I think Dutton and Plibersek and Roxon and Ahmed Fahur and a few others were there. And I was impressed with him back then. And I think his command of the data and the statistics and the work ethic has been really quite strong during... Um, and, you know, fast-tracking telehealth was a you know, good long-term decision, working with the private insurers, the private hospitals. I think he's a big loss. Um, but because I've publicly said he'll join the CSL board, I'm sure that means it probably won't happen now. But, uh, no, I think he's been a good <laughs> health minister. And uh, you're overstating, you know, how hard it is to be a big public company part-time director versus being a politician. It's uh, much harder, I would argue, being a minister than just being a humble one-day-a-week uh, part-time director. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there. Uh, All right. Adric says, I bought shares in PPK Group after Alan mentioned it in the previous incarnation of the Money Cafe. It's doing nicely, volatile. They're about to vote to demerge. This is the second demerge I'm aware of. Do you have any insights into this? So, well, uh, Adric, um, I did listen to Alan's interview with the PPK executive chairman uh, yesterday. And look, they're an interesting company, mining services business with a commercialization division. They've done very well with handouts from this uh, drunken sailor spending government. They got $6.5 million just last week for a battery technology program they're doing with Deakin University. So their stock has been as high as $23. It's now back to 3 but it was as low as $0.50 cents two or three years ago. So it's been a good ride as long as you've been in there for a while. 
and their diversified commercialisation play and hopefully um, they're going to, two or three of the things will come off big time and they'll be a good play. But uh, look, interesting company. and uh, Worth noting, Stephen, this latest demerger is of their equipment, uh, mining equipment business, and it's into an unlisted public company, not a listed one. So uh, it is worth noting that you'll be in an unlisted public company in this instance. So mm. uh, I would have thought that, that that provides some challenges around liquidity where, you know, when you want yeah. to sell out or buy more. So that's I just agree with that. Noting. I didn't realise that. but And I also noticed they've got four directors. Three of them are executives. They've got yeah. no females on the board and all four of the directors have more than $5 million worth of stock. So this is a founder-led company without the governance niceties of uh, independent oversight. So, um, yeah, I think you've always got to watch the governance challenges uh, in those situations, in my view. So, All right. Well, uh, Stephen, I think we've addressed the... uh the coal, Queensland coal question through our earlier question. So I'm going to jump to Ian's question, who's got a sledge for you. Ian, Stephen, for a smart bloke, you say some stupid stuff. $60 billion to buy out Transurban could be one of the worst government spending decisions I've ever heard of. Uh, but to use one of the most hated Queenslanders, Campbell Union, as a role, Campbell Newman, as a role model for one of the most hated Victorians, Josh Frydenberg was quite spectacular. Have figured you've forgotten the unhinged vitriol Josh spewed out against Victoria when we were doing the hard yards against COVID. As you rate Josh as a good treasurer, could you outline what uh, grounds for that assessment were? Well, uh, I think you should buy it against Josh. He's not, he wasn't spewing vitriol against Victorians. Um, so, um, look, I just think, like his best mate, Greg Hunt, uh, you know, being treasurer in a pandemic is not easy. He has been across the detail. He is good on his feet. It is an incredibly diverse portfolio, being treasurer of Australia. And I, like, I disagree with the scale of the spending. I think they went over the top with JobKeeper, which was massively rorted. Um, but overall, I just think he, you know, he's more competent than most. Um, and I do think that uh, the Victorian Liberals lack talent. And so if he does lose his seat, I'm just saying I think he's a better option to lead the Victorian Liberals, a la Campbell Newman, going from Lord Mayor to opposition leader, not in the parliament. I'm just saying that's an option for him if he's unemployed on Monday. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, well, that's going to be one of the biggest watches of uh, of Saturday night. So that'll be good. Now, just the last one. Colin says, can you suggest any strategies for stock picking shares or the like for income? I'm trying to develop a diversified defensive portfolio of fully frank shares to support my retired mother. We, you're in the right country, Colin. We, we're, Australia specialises in uh, dividend stocks. And look, it, it, you know, uh, I guess you... you the strategies are to look at, you know, dividend yields and uh, th- think about, I'd be thinking particularly at the moment about which dividends you think are sustainable. Uh, so, you know, you can get high dividend payers who burn brightly for a little while and, and and then maybe pay out too many dividends and aren't reinvesting in the business. So that'd be my thing. Figure out which companies are paying sustainable dividends while also reinvesting in their business to think about, their future growth. I reckon the banks are doing that pretty well. Yeah. Uh, the big miners are doing that pretty well at the moment. So you're in safe ground in those those blue chip areas. Certainly that's where I'd be hunting. I don't know if you've got anything else there, Stephen. Yeah, I think the other issue is REITs. I went to the GPT AGM in Sydney uh, last week 
And uh, they're trading at a 27% discount to NTA. And most of the other listed REITs in you know, a Mervac vicinity are trading at discounts of, of you know, more than 20% to their claimed NTA. So we talk yeah. about a, a residential property bubble. Well, it's the opposite in commercial. Logistics is booming, but everyone is really negative on office and retail. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, They, I reckon that counter-cyclically, um, you know, some of those nicely diversified REITs with blue-chip assets, um, they, pay, they pay a good distribution. They might be an option. But, but Colin, just wait for the dips. Buy on the dips and, um, <laughs> yeah, stick with the top 200 and um, hope your mum gets plenty of uh, fully frank dividends and cash refunds from the ATO every year with our beautifully, massively rotable franking credit system. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, I, I should ask, what, what does Saturday night have in store for you? Will you be out on the hustings or...? Uh... No, I'm not, I'm not actually going to... I might go to a few booths and hand out a few anti-gambling uh, flyers on the day, but no, I've got a friend putting on a party, so uh, we're all due there at 7.30. Same, same host we had three years ago, and uh, I will confess that it was a bit of a glum mood. I won't say how I voted, but it's a bit of a glum mood with this crew, inner-city Melbourne types, you know, three years ago. <laughs> Okay, so we'll see if we have a slightly different tone on Saturday night. But, uh, well, it's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. Uh, are you, are you, are you watching it? Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'm obviously still quarantined, so I'll, I think I'll be at home with the remote in hand, flicking the channels vigorously, and yeah, thinking yeah. about what, what to say. I mean, I think the new whoever the next, whichever, whatever the next government looks like, it's going to have some serious challenges. The world's a pretty. Uh, Fast-moving, fast-changing place at the moment. So yeah, and I agree. And this will be the first election where where a majority of people vote before election day. So uh, we won't. I don't think we'll know a decision on the night because the the postals, which will be at a record, won't be opened until Sunday afternoon. And the postals always traditionally are the Liberals' strongest area because older people tend to vote conservative. So if you see a few, make sure you look for the booth by booth comparisons on Saturday night adjusting for that because the Liberals will finish strongly with the postals and they won't be in the data on Saturday night. Yeah, right. Well, that's a good tip. That's a good tip. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with Alan, hopefully in the Short Straw Cafe down in Hawthorne. So send in a question and we'll do our best to answer them. You can email themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Hello, I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate, City of Manningham, councillor, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Happy election day. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.